Welcome to The Behavioural Investor, everyone. This time we're spelling it with a U since we have two British guests and, well, I'm sitting in Bristol. We're pleased to introduce you to two psychedelics advocates. We have Tara Austin, who's a consulting partner at the Ogilvy Behavioural Science Practice. And she's actually planning to run as a Conservative Party candidate on a psychedelics platform. We also have Josh Hardman. He is apparently in the top 100 psychedelics influencers and founder of Psilocybin Alpha. So thanks very much for both of you joining us. Thanks for having us. I should say so, I'm trying to run uh, rather than I'm running. I'm trying to run. Do you need to get a certain number of people to nominate you before you be running in it? Or is it a bit more administrative than that? No, it's more administrative. I have to be sort of assessed to make sure I'm a decent human being. But I mean, if someone wants to put together a petition for, for Parliament, like put me in there, then that, that's fine with me. <laughs> Psychedelics isn't really talked much about. There's taboos to do with it. There's also, I think, a, a bit of fascination, I, I reckon, in the public about the experience. So it'd be interesting to hear from each of you what you know of from people you've spoken with, businesses in this area, how it can be to take psychedelics. Psychedelic medicines are profoundly healing instruments. Humankind has been consuming psychedelics for millennia. We know this. We've got the bioarchaeological evidence that people have been consuming psychedelic medicines in, in plant forms uh, for, for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, and they've done that because they can be healing. How they heal, we are only just starting to understand. We have these amazing fMRI scanners now. We can put people inside them and in places like Imperial and Johns Hopkins University. We can study in randomized control trials what happens when you consume a psychedelic medicine in a controlled environment in what we call the right set and setting. So where you have the right mindset and intention to heal and where you are in a therapeutic environment room with with therapists around you we can see what what happens there and what we're finding is that for depression even even treatment resistant depression addiction addiction to tobacco addiction to alcohol and ptsd so these kinds of trauma that people who are unwell and who are really struggling with their mental health um, that when consuming a psychedelic medicine in the right set and setting we're seeing sort of up to 80% success rates in any one clinical trial for healing and, and putting people into remission. And, and really remarkable studies that we're seeing now from things like escitalopram, which is the leading SSRI antidepressant, that SSRI going head to head with psilocybin, which is the psychoactive compound in magic mushrooms. And in trial, uh, we're looking at the fact that versus the leading SSRI antidepressant, and, and there hasn't been any real new innovation in that space for, for 50 years, that mushrooms or psilocybin, uh, which in theory just grows out of the ground, you don't need a patent on this molecule necessarily, although many people are trying to do that, um, that these mushrooms are, you're, you're twice as likely uh, to be in remission um, from your depression. But not only that, it's not just about the reduction in depressive symptoms, uh, because of course, you know, SSRI antidepressants, they, they may work, uh, not for everyone, About only about 70% of people respond at all to SSRIs, but they, they do work for many people, reducing their depression. But in this study that led by Robin Carhart-Harris and the team at Imperial, they were also looking at well-being. And what they saw in that study is that the, rather than having the SSRI, taking psilocybin led to an increase in well-being. And um, it's, my, it's my belief that we're shifting into a new paradigm for mental health medicine where instead of 
taking a, a little pill every day that will numb you to your life. Yeah. You are having surgery and that in four to six hours, which is the kind of duration of a, a psilocybin journey or experience that in that period you're having the surgery and you're, you're dealing with the thing that is uh, bringing about the challenge, bringing about this low, uh, this low mood, serious depression, suicidality, even addiction. You're dealing with it. You're visiting it. You're going there. And that at the end of that experience, you can come out the other side, not just not depressed, but actually with your joy back. I've seen with my own eyes too many people now who have had their joy really return to them and their and their freedom from their addictions, which leads me to believe that these these medicines really are the future. Is it mainly Western countries that are using it? And also with that treatment for depression or anxiety, is it a single treatment or do you are people essentially put onto a plan of sorts over you know, a series of treatments? I mean, most of the clinical trials today have been one or two treatments. The Imperial study was two treatments, three weeks apart, one dose in each. But that said, they have also been on a plan of a psychotherapy. So it was within the context of a psychotherapeutic plan. Uh, but the actual dosing once or twice, I think the most recent COMPASS trial was just one, one uh, administration. The interesting thing to note about psychedelics, I should say this from the top, is they are not addictive. The body builds up almost immediate tolerance to psychedelic medicine. So if I gave you a high dose of psilocybin today and I did the same tomorrow uh, and the next day, by I think day four, you would have almost no effect. And so that kind of that notion of like physical addiction uh, doesn't really apply. And in fact, they are actually anti-addictive, as we know. So they, they do they do heal people of their tobacco addictions uh, and their alcohol addictions. And they're, you know, I know they're exploring at the moment gambling addictions and various other kinds Interesting of how it, it almost, I liked how you said before, putting it head to head with an SSRI. And now, now you're, you're commenting how it can almost uh, combat the, or heal the effects of other addictive drugs. It's, it's kind of incredible. Um, is that why there's so much interest in, in the business world in, in these drugs, Josh? For sure. I think also, you know, comparing it to the standard of care for, you know, smoking addiction and depression is a good way of kind of getting at the root of how just disruptive and different this model of care is about thinking about how to deal with these diseases. So with depression at the moment, we obviously have antidepressants like SSRIs, which block the reuptake of serotonin in the brain, i.e. making more available within the brain itself, as opposed to, you know, receding into the receptors themselves. And the same with nicotine addiction. So we have these patches and we have tablets. Um, and, and the idea of those is replacing, you know, occupying the nicotine receptor in the brain. So basically replacing the nicotine you would have got from a cigarette with a kind of drug-based intervention. So in both cases, it's operating at the receptor level. It's basically just trying to boost the chemicals in the brain that your, that your brain is desiring. Um, whereas psychedelics, yeah, we're doing the opposite. You know, we're actually trying to deal with a deep-rooted problem. We're trying to break out of those learned neural networks in the brain that are reinforcing negative behaviors. And as Tara said, you know, a lot of the clinical trials are just using one or two or three administrations of a psychedelic. So it is really moving from a chronic kind of chronic dosing based regime where you're taking a nicotine supplement each day or taking an SSRI each day into moving to maybe one or two kind of, I think Tara, you said surgeries, you know, interventions. It's this move towards psychiatric interventionism and, you know, psychedelics aren't the only interventions. We've seen transcranial magnetic stimulation be incredibly propitious at dealing with not just mental health disorders, but perhaps things like migraines. And now we're seeing psychedelics be used for the same kind of thing. So I think on the business side, this is interesting because 
obviously chronic dosing is a good model, right? It's a good subscription model for big pharma, right? You know, I think Prozac, Zoloft, Wellbutrin, all the leading SSRIs in the US have sales of over $2 billion a year, right? You know, you're selling these pills on a daily basis. Whereas if you have a psychedelic intervention that could work, quote unquote, in a quarter of people or a fifth of people, like we've just seen in the Compass Pathways trials for treatment-resistant depression, if it works in one in four, one in five people after just one dose, albeit with some therapy around it, that's incredibly disruptive, right, to big pharma. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of kind of fear, I guess, among big pharma, but I also don't think they've taken it seriously until now, until we're now getting into kind of phase three, which is the last phase before potential approval. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. I had a conversation with some people at a tobacco company and they're incredibly arrogant. They just have no, they haven't, they're not seeing this as a threat at all. They think, oh, our, our customers are addicted and they'll always be addicted. And so we'll just, maybe we'll shift them from cigarettes into other nicotine products. And I said, but you are looking at psilocybin, right? Like one dose experience and, and someone quitting smoking for the rest of their life. Uh, and they're just not even... A lot of people are slow on the uptake, but then, hey, I often feel like I'm this woman going, there's this thing called the internet and it's coming. I promise it's going to affect your business. It's going to affect your world. And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. This, this crazy lady. But actually now people are really starting to see the impact and, and the market is driving that. The market is the thing that even when we're having conversations, I'm doing this lobbying work with the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group and the kind of conversations we're having with very conservative uh, MPs and uh, and businesses is the, the market is moving. And when a Thai IPO'd for 2.3 billion on the NASDAQ in, in, in May, that's significant. Like everyone starts to pay attention then. You talked about the way that they're anti-addictive in a way or that they're stopping addictions that people have. How do they actually work? It's a lovely study published in the summer about psilocybin causing neurogenesis on the dendrites of the neurons, so actually brain growth. The latest thinking, or one of the main theories coming out of Imperial, they call the entropy hypothesis. Uh, this is the idea that the brain has a default mode. You have this patterned way of thought that may have been strengthened over over time, you know, from your earliest experiences, strengthen, strengthen, strengthen until it's your default setting. It's the thing that you're, it's the way of thought when you're not really thinking about anything. It's, it's who you are in some ways. And by creating a huge amount of disorder in the brain, um, the psilocybin and, and other psychedelics create a neuroplasticity. I often uh, use the analogy, people say it's, it's shaking the snow globe. And I like to think um, if you're stuck going down the mountain in the skis in the same rut, and that rut is telling you, I want a cigarette, I want a cigarette, I want a cigarette, or I want a drink, or I'm I'm no good, nobody loves me. And every time somebody looks at you funny in the shop, uh, it further strengthens and deepens your sort of sense of uh, low self-esteem or whatever it might be. Um, you're always going down the same mountain, same rut. Psilocybin is sort of a, a fresh layer of snow. It, it gives you a little bit more uh, room to maneuver, space to think, power, liber liberty in your in your thinking. Uh, but I think it, do it does this really through creating creating that disorder in the mind for a, a set period of time. But when you come out the other side of that, things are very different. Winter Wonderland. <laughs> I mean, they do call them magic mushrooms, you know. <laughs> they are quite magical, yes. Tara, I remember when you mentioned Timothy Leary's approach to the science. I thought in covering the science, we should talk briefly about that. And then, Josh, you could tell us how the science is happening at the moment. Yeah, I think the interesting thing with psychedelics is it's such a, it starts off this kind of crazy word for people that's associated with like the hippies and this 
and magic mushrooms and and, the, and there's two things I really like to land one of which is that this is science this is not crazy woo-woo stuff anymore this is hard science and evidence but also just giving people a sense of well how did we get here then like if these medicines work what's happened and the fact is that psychedelic medicines were only really recognized in the modern western world fairly recently when when that happened when albert hoffman first identified lsd in the lab that was in the, in the late 40s there was this period of thinking this is the future of psychiatry they they recognized it back then and a thousand papers were published on lsd and and psilocybin when it was first identified in the in the late 50s and then I think it was 59 when Timothy Leary, Harvard professor, first took psilocybin and, uh, and his life changed radically. And, and this happens to many people when they first encounter a psychedelic medicine because they appreciate the connectedness of all, all life. And in terms of that experience of taking a psychedelic medicine, the, the lived experience, people often talk about sort of hallucinatory experience so your visual field the mind psychedelic literally means mind manifesting the mind will manifest and um, things but one thing that people also refer to and I think Robin Carr Harris referred to this recently and when he was talking about some of the recent trials is that people get something like I think they call it the overview effect so when the astronauts go up into space and they look back on planet earth and they see this ball in the black of the sky and they realize we're just there's, there's no boundaries really we're just one the guy who coined the term said we're, we're spaceship earth and we're all the crew um and you get this view it's it's beautiful and this is the thing it's this over effect is is taking perspective and saying no hang on we we're all in this together we're all connected what so there are people at the moment who are actually referring to psychedelics as sort of ecodelics because they have been very influential in driving already uh, the, one of the founders of extinction rebellion was motivated by psychedelic medicine to set up that organization and people are recognizing that they have this powerful effect uh, in the psyche and i think this was something that uh, timothy leary saw uh, through then his lsd experiences he believed that the whole world needed to have this experience in order to turn on and tune in and then sort of drop out of the of the of the of the wars were taking place now, the problem with that was that the Nixon administration uh, needed people to go to war and they needed people to vote Republican. And when Leary started giving uh, psychedelic medicines uh, to people outside of the lab and to his students and really encouraging people to take up and experience these medicines, healthy normals, rather than people with kind of depression or... or um, it's as but, though he was liberating people. He believed he was, and and there was a sort of messianic quality to that. Yeah, he, he wanted the whole world to, he, you know, there was talk about putting it in the water and all this kind of mad wow. stuff that you absolutely never do in a million years. Except but we have fluoride and chlorine. Yeah, uh, but he wanted the, he wanted people to see what he'd seen, and there's some sort of nobility in that. But equally, he also sort of ruined it for everyone because the conservative right and the Nixon administration got very afraid. There's also some really terrible things that were written about. I think it's the 1968 campaign. Uh, the Nixon campaign, where they basically said, look, we had two enemies, the hippies and the blacks, and we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either. But what we could do is vilify their communities by making their drugs illegal. And so what we did it, uh, we uh, it's, it's expressly so that we could vilify them on the night on the nightly news. And there was a huge amount of propaganda in this period that was all anti flower power, anti cultural revolution. So, um, and, and they went back into their box. Yes. Is this a theme, at least in my upbringing and in my experience with my father, was 
I, I was basically born in Australia's largest hippie commune called Universal mm. Brotherhood. And essentially, it, it felt at least the men that were involved in part and in a big way were, were affected by the Vietnam War. And I almost feel like what you're saying is yet another long-lasting effect down the generation from the Vietnam War. It's incredible. Millions of lives could have been saved. I mean, millions of lives have been lost to suicide and alcoholism and tobacco. Um, and we had these medicines in the, in the 40s and 50s. We really had them and we were experimenting with them and we were seeing the potential. And we had, you know, they say something like 40,000 people have been through clinical trials with psychedelic medicines since we first really identified them in the modern era. And, and, and without adverse effects, without people dying, without, you know, these are very, very safe and effective medicines in the clinical studies. And they were put in a box and that box was put away. And if it weren't for some really dedicated people who all deserve to have Nobel prizes and things, um, if it weren't for those campaigners, they wouldn't have got back into the lab. And now right. we're in a different age and it's not, we're not Puritan you know victorians anymore um, and we understand that that um psychoactive uh, compounds can can help us so let's mm. let's embrace that i think we also just you know the other bit of context is we have the science now right to actually understand it was just such a black box in the 50s and 60s it was mm. all very observational naturalistic and then obviously in the 60s we had the thalidomide disaster right which caused mm. you know horrible horrible deaths and you know I don't know. So that kind of changed and shook up the way that clinical research was done. How it used to often be done was a doctor or a physician would take a new drug or something they had kind of found or wanted to repurpose and literally often take it to, you know, mental hospitals and, you know, uh, mental health care facilities where people had kind of been festering for many years and they would just test drugs on them. It was very observational. And that's what led to things like the thalidomide disaster. So Tara, yeah, yeah, you're right about what was going on in the cultural side and the political side with, you know, our, our drugs were expanding people's consciousness in a way that threatened, you know, the political uh, incumbents. But also there's this whole shift on the kind of more boring kind of FDA clinical trial side, mm -hmm. which made a lot of the psychedelic research untenable because it was just too black box. No one really understood what was going on. And then the obvious difficulty as well is when you want to have a randomized trial, you need to have one group that's on a placebo. You know, they need to have no effect, but also you don't want them to know they're on the placebo, right? Because otherwise you can't rigorously evaluate it. And how do you give someone a psychedelic and then give the other half of the group no psychedelic? It's pretty obvious whether you're on a psychedelic. I don't know, presumably we all here have been, and I think it's pretty obvious, right? If you're tripping versus you're not. So that was another big issue, right? How do we rigorously control these trials? And it's an issue that persists today. There are some advances, you know, now there's some sort of active placebos that they're not commonly used. Um, or, you know, comparing a psychedelic to more of a dissociative drug like ketamine is something that's being explored now. But I think all of these more boring methodological challenges also stymied a lot of the research. But yeah, I think ultimately the war on drugs was the kind of final death now for a lot of the work. Definitely. Now we truly are connected. So the, the beautiful thing is people always say to me, oh, but could this, you know, we're going through this psychedelic renaissance. It is the psychedelic renaissance. Could it go back in the box? No. Yes, I'm scared that we're going to have some bad instances and, uh, you know, people out there in the world accessing these medicines in um, unsafe ways. And, and that will be very bad for the reputation of these medicines. But nonetheless, they can't go back in the box because we're, we are connected and we can, every single one of us can read these papers. You can go online and, re and read the papers in the New England Journal of Medicine. You know, these are and these are rigorous studies. We want to do a lot more research, but it, it can't go back in the box anymore, I think science is out and an example of that i, I think or, or at least to 
cover a little bit of the history of the research. There's a hell of a lot of science going on. I read a, a Yahoo News article. There was also a, a Twitter thread you put out about a phase 2B trial of, of COMP or COMP 360. I'd be interested a few minutes about that. Yeah, for sure. And firstly, the Yahoo article you read is based on a drug development tracker we made where we tried to aggregate all of the work that's going on in the space. So huge grateful to my friend, um, Michael Hyken, who helped me with that. But yeah, there's a huge amount of work going on. We're now in phase three, which is really exciting. Um, phase three being the final clinical trial phase required to then take that data to the FDA in America, the EMA in Europe and MHRA in the UK to then kind of ask, you know, please, can we market this drug? Can we have approval? We've shown that it's safe and effective. So being in phase three is, you know, a really big milestone for the space. Um, the trial in, in phase three is MDMA for PTSD. Uh, that's being forwarded by a nonprofit, which is interesting. Uh, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, they're the ones that have been kind of carefully stewarding that through for the last kind of 30, 40 years. So a real labor of love for the founder, Rick Doblin. And I think Rick Doblin's actually the one who said, Tara, about, you know, it's cheaper to give people LSD than take them to space when he was talking mm. about how do we give us that kind of collective overview effect. So Rick's, I can't get on to Rick because he's just a whole, a whole nother 20 series podcast in himself. But he has had this whole kind of one, one side of his life is dedicated to drug policy reform and kind of normalizing psychedelics. And the other half is more pragmatic and it's all about getting these drugs through clinical trials, because ultimately to get them paid for and to get people able to access them and to get people who aren't liberal and who, you know, who don't like the hippie associations to get them access to these drugs does require, you know, FDA approval and insurance payment. So that's think, kind of... So, sorry, just to, because I, I feel that the value of talking about the science here is to uh, address the taboo, which is the next topic. And uh, maybe for people to understand the, uh, can you tell us what fa the different phases mean? And that will help people understand the significance of passing from one phase to the next um, to address the, the safety, most importantly. Yeah, sure. So in your first phase of clinical trials, you're basically trying to assess whether it's safe. You know, obviously, if you're sponsoring a clinical trial, you're hoping that it's going to be effective in the long term. Otherwise, you wouldn't be spending hundreds and millions and billions even of dollars of doing it. But the first phase is giving it to healthy people uh, who don't have the treatment or uh, who don't have the indication or disease you're looking to address. Uh, and just seeing, you know, is it safe? So that's your first phase. Usually quite a high, you know, chance of success, especially with something like psychedelics, where we have a lot of historical anecdotal data that they're, you know, that they're safe. We, we haven't seen indigenous people who took psilocybin thousands of years ago growing third legs or having serious kind of health issues. So we kind of know that they're safe. Um, the second phase is when you start looking at, you know, we know they're safe and, you know, we, we need to continue bearing that in trials, but now we're going to pivot towards looking at effectiveness. So then you start bringing in people who do have the disease that you're targeting. So people who are treatment resistant depression, who do have anxiety, or in the case of the MDMA trial, have been suffering PTSD for a long time. So that's your second phase. You're usually looking at around 100, 200 people. The most recent Compass Pathways trial looked at 233 people across 10 sites in North America and Europe, for example. It's quite a good example. Um, and then once you, you know, you've done that, that's your pre preliminary data of safety and efficacy. At that point, there's about kind of 50-50 chance of success that you're going to have enough data. Long, so, so how long is that taken? Uh, again, just to get it, uh, how conservative this is, <laughs> key word there, um, uh, and how, how, how people can begin perhaps to, to trust it, not to say that they should, but how this process um, is a, 
a way to to see if you should trust something like a psychedelic yeah i mean this process can take around seven years and okay. uh, um, right. But the interesting Long. thing in terms of trust is that the FDA is speeding all of this up, right? They've given, uh, they gave first esketamine, which was a kind of related to psychedelic product, I guess. Esketamine got breakthrough therapy designation from the FDA, which okay. is basically where the FDA looks at it and says, you know, this not only looks like it's going to be safe and effective from early data, but also it's targeting something where there's a huge amount of unmet need. And obviously mental health has probably the biggest unmet need in the world. But so basically that was granted to Esketamin, which became Spravate, which was actually brought through to approval by Johnson & Johnson, you know, one of the biggest pharma companies in the world. But more interestingly, the FDA then gave psilocybin, so magic mushrooms, they gave it a breakthrough designation on two occasions, Compass Pathways, the for-profit company, and USONA Institute, a non-profit. Um, and they've also given breakthrough designation to MDMA for PTSD. So I think when we think about trust and confidence, I think, you know, the Food and Drug Administration of the United States is probably the biggest kind of uh, bastion of that kind of uh, task. So I think the fact they've designated breakthrough designations three occasions to psychedelic okay. is like a great, so a great time. Um, there's some promise, even under incredibly exacting and methodical um, examination. People who are in a position of protecting a population of 250 million, in the case of the US, see that it's okay for psilocybin drugs to progress through these, uh, these trial phases. So then, I mean, I, I saw an article on CNBC saying that a trillion dollars over half a century has basically been spent by this, this population or this country, the US, in fighting these kinds of drugs. And this, this relates to the paradigm shift or the, that you brought up, Tara. We also have, again, people like you, Tara, who are thinking of mounting a political campaign, which you'd normally think would be within the Greens party or something like that, but you're, <laughs> you're wanting to do it as a conservative. Yeah, I mean, I am a conservative. Um, right. I, 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 I work, like I said, I'm working with a conservative drug policy reform group. And actually, we are a lobby group set up by a conservative MP, Crispin Blunt, the MP for Reigate, wonderful man. And he he is a conservative, but the, the lobby group itself is cross-parliamentary. So we have members from Labour and from the Greens, and we're really trying to, we're, we're building at the moment that, that coalition. But I often say to people, we, we call ourselves the conservative drug policy reform group because if we called ourselves the radical progressive drug policy reform group we wouldn't get taken very seriously <laughs> amongst the part and particularly within the party uh, that leads our country and um, because ultimately i'm not i'm not waiting around here i want this administration the the boris johnson uh, administration to reschedule psilocybin in in the uk and uh, one thing that um your listeners might not be familiar with is the difference between classification and scheduling so the classification of a drug class abc in the uk and in other countries is um what happens to you if you've got it on the street uh, because it's a banned controlled substance and say class a would mean uh and uh, like seven years in prison potentially at the, at the top end um uh very much banned class c is still banned um and, and it's still potential uh prison sentence um for possession uh, but not quite the same maybe two years um and at the moment you'd, psilocybin and other classic psychedelics are all in class a um and as is pretty much everything else you'd imagine cocaine all of these kinds of things uh cannabis is a little bit lower down but the scheduling is very different because the scheduling is whether or not 
a doctor could prescribe this medicine to you if you needed it, or a researcher could access it in controlled circumstances. And that, and for that reason, at the moment, psychedelics are schedule one substances, along with everything else that is supposedly, and the classification of that is that it, or the scheduling uh, relates to the fact that it is addictive um, and it has no, no known therapeutic benefit. Uh, so a schedule one substance should basically be something that is really pretty dangerous and nobody has any reason to access. Now, a schedule two substance could be something like morphine, which has a therapeutic benefit and any hospital pharmacy in the country uh, has access to morphine. If you want to do research with morphine, you can do it. Um, what we're asking for from the UK government at the moment is not changing the drug laws and the ways that people are able to access um, drugs generally, although I think, you know, in the drug policy reform group, we do have plans for that more broadly. What we were specifically asking for is the rescheduling of psilocybin. So that instead of being a schedule one substance that our researchers can't access very easily at all uh, and at great expense, um, that they reschedule and they um, explore whether it should be two, three, even four um, uh, in the scheduling. Uh, because quite frankly, it's not addictive and it has a high therapeutic uh, benefit. So we need our doctors to be able to prescribe these as medicines. Uh, um, and that, that's our focus uh, for the CDPRG, the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group. But we, yeah, I'm, I'm a conservative. Uh, I, I follow the science on this. I, I believe in evidence-based government. There's nothing weirdo, radical, hippie about this. Can I just say the benefits are so far reaching. So I was I was fortunate enough last year when when Dominic Cummings was still basically in power and working for Boris Johnson. I had a conversation with him about uh, about psychedelic medicines uh, that set in train a whole load of stuff and some lobbying within number 10. Um, but one of the things I said to him there was, you know, this is not just a, this is not just about addressing depression and addiction and PTSD trauma. It's actually you know, 50% of acquisitive crime in this country comes from addiction. Um, you know, one in three places in, in, our, in our prison system are, are hard kind of drug addicts. Those drug addicts uh, inevitably have faced trauma within their lives. You know, if we really start to address and we have the tools and the medicines that can help us address our trauma as a society and our mental health, we don't just, we don't just fix those things, we fix domestic violence, we fix obesity, we fix acquisitive crime, or at least we begin to address them um, in really adequate ways where we go to the root cause of these um, social challenges. And I, I genuinely believe that these medicines, when uh, when spirituality, when human humanity is spiritualized, as, as Rick Doblin says, when, when these medicines um, have access to people and people have access to them in safe ways, that we are going to see massive knock-on benefits in our criminal justice system um, and our overall well-being. I'm utopian about this, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I think that's a good segue into a question that I had about the future and you can answer this question either in terms of time frames or different scenarios but what does the future look like? Um, is it what are the likely scenarios that may play out you know, um, and what time frames would be, be reasonable for um, those to eventuate? And you can talk to that either in the medical yeah. sense or the political sense or even the um, you know, interrelated business sense as well of the market. I'll take my cue and I'll give you the kind of more 
uh, boring, pragmatic answer, and then Tara can come in with some utopianism, some refreshing utopianism, maybe. But yeah, I think in terms of the medical model, we should expect to see MDMA for PTSD be up for approval in 2023, which is a lot sooner than most people realize. So yeah, the, the last phase three is being completed now. It should be done by the end of next year. And then the FDA will be reviewing that. So that could be, you know, the first uh, psychedelic-based therapeutic brought to market in 2023. Um, after that, we should see the rest of this kind of pipeline of drugs, which includes psilocybin, LSD, and a bunch of novel derivatives coming through. So psilocybin for depression could be up for approval in 2025. So on the medical side, we're really starting to see, you know, things come to fruition. Behind those late stage studies, there's a huge amount of work being done, not just on mental health, but also really starting to kind of understand the underlying mechanisms of psychedelics. As Tara said, you know, fMRI studies are helping us see the neural connectivity, neuroplasticity, neurogenesis. And we understand that, you know, that's probably a big part of, you know, driving the efficacy of these medicines. But there's also some work that shows that there's anti-inflammatory properties of psychedelics. So we kind of have this whole class of drugs that we broadly understand to be safe, but we don't really know what they're going to work for because they haven't been touched really since the 50s and we definitely haven't applied modern scientific method to them for the last kind of half century so there's a lot of excitement that these drugs might also be efficacious in things like neurodevelopmental disorders or neurodegenerative disorders like alzheimer's and parkinson's so really exciting amount of work going on there but it's really early so it's kind of at the start of that kind of seven eight year clinical trial period a lot of it's preclinical, you know it's in animal models um, but yeah so i think on the medical side there's a lot of excitement around that um, on the more cultural side, we're seeing a huge amount of decriminalization and legalization. Like in Oregon, voters in November 2020 uh, overwhelmingly voted to legalize psilocybin therapy, which is very different from decriminalization, where, where technically it becomes the lowest law enforcement priority. So in America, for example, if you're crossing the street when the man's flashing red, at, but you are also you know, taking shrooms, what decriminalization means is the policeman should actually give you the ticket for jaywalking before he gives you the ticket for taking shrooms. That's what it means. It means it's the lowest enforcement priority. Um, but then legalization is where you're actually creating an actual legal framework around the delivery of psilocybin therapy. And that's what's happened in Oregon. So that's coming online in just under two years because part of the vote stipulated that they had to have a two-year developmental process, you know, because it's such a disruptive and innovative form of therapy they basically said we need to have a two-year period to kind of step back and work out how we're actually going to do this. So again, even if you know psilocybin therapy isn't FDA approved in 2025, we're going to have this really kind of curious natural laboratory in the form of Oregon, where people will be legally delivering this care in many different formats. You know, some people it looks like they might be able to do it outside, you know, in forests in like these kind of retreat centers. Other people might, you know, bring it in more of a kind of clinical kind of setting. Um, so, yeah, I think that's going to be interesting. And I think we're only going to see more decriminalization and legalization across the world. And I just wanted to add, there's also Washington, D.C., right, that's uh, legalized. I just, is there momentum building? Because, uh, Tara, you talked about um, legalization in the U.K. or at least uh, changing the scheduling. Is there, a, just like marijuana, um, is uh, LSD, psilocybin, et cetera, going to, is there legalization going to sweep the world? Yeah. I mean, even yeah. the Republicans are moving on this. This is the thing that yeah. in the, it's, it's actually really helped with the, some of the conservative conversations here. Um, so Rick Perry, the former Republican governor of a very, very Republican Texas, um, has, through, yeah. has just pushed through a bill to spend, I think, one point five million dollars annually on psilocybin research. Even in uh, Texas. 
for veterans with PTSD. And, and it's because he's he's a seen so many people lost. Um, you know, in this country, we lose more. We've lost more of our veterans from Afghanistan to suicide than we have in, in combat, which is disgraceful, um, you know, that we're not doing more about this. But the Americans, they really care about their veterans. And, and so Texas is is pushing on psilocybin. They, they see it works. Um, how tragic this so, all is that the the men returning and getting spat on during the moratorium marches to do the Vietnam War, uh, who would have had PTSD, they would have really benefited from psilocybin back then. Absolutely, and 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 they are benefiting from it now. There's actually an organisation in the US and the UK called Heroic Hearts. Um, where and they are set up specifically to take veteran soldiers on retreat um, to and in the UK that means they have to take them out of the country which again is it just it really bothers me um, in, in the US it's possible to do it within the states uh, as part of a sort of religious ceremony and a sacrament um, to have ayahuasca or, or a psilocybin assisted um, treatment um, and, they're, and they're seeing great success with that uh, it works it just works on the subject again of paradigm shifts um, and things sweeping the world, marijuana is being legalized, gay marriage is being legalized. It looked like it seems like in the next 10 years, um, uh, psychedelics will be. Something's going on. I mean, we've got battery cars now. Another thing, like in 1906, Mercedes had a battery car. It looked like automobiles were going to be battery powered. And then suddenly, so the light, the light turned on. And then suddenly um, things went in a, a different direction and we had oil powered cars, put it that way. The same thing seems to have happened um, with psychedelics, I, I guess. And then I, I see you, you also mentioned in our, in our discussions uh, in the, in the, on the way into this conversation, um, Tara, that you'd been involved in a female genital, genital mutilation campaign um, to, to change society uh, and uh, improve uh, young girls' lives. I, I, and now you're focusing on psychedelics. I see there's a theme in, in your life and what you're doing, Tara, which is to, to in a way, liberate humanity, if that's not uh, too much of a, um, uh, <laughs> exaggerate what you're doing, but there is a theme there. So what's the next taboo that both of you think needs to be worked on or, or what? Could you comment um, on, on what the next sort of wave's gonna be? I've, I've got a kind of crazy plan on this, as you'd expect from me, uh, maybe. Um, I've, got, I've got a view which, if, if I ever find myself a boyfriend, <laughs> and if I ever, <laughs> if I can ever, um, you know, yeah, find someone I love enough to want to marry them, um, I've got this idea that I would like a seven-year marriage contract because, you know, <laughs> I work in behavioral science, right? I do, that's my my, room, my my day job. Uh, I'm applied behavioral science practitioner, and I understand commitment and optimization, and I understand that the divorce rate in, in this country and the rest of the world is um, is not good for children. And, and, and actually, it's not so much, I think, that people get divorced at all and that their marriages end. It's that... that uh, the current way of doing that is expensive. It takes a lot of time. And more than anything, it just brings a lot of very bad energy into um, people's relationships. W what I think is interesting is that we currently treat marriage and divorce as a, as a private issue. And actually, I think that's because the shame associated with it. People talk about the failure of my marriage. 
Now, I don't think it's a private issue at all. I think it's a social, political issue. It's something that touches absolutely everyone, uh, whether they've been divorced or not, uh, whether they've had divorced parents or not. We're all uh, touched by um, what happens to people when they go through that. And uh, as a behavioral scientist, I just want to optimize the hell out of it. So I've got this idea, I'd like a seven year marriage contract where if both parties don't decide to renew at seven years, uh, there's a prenuptially agreed divorce. So you kind of go into it with full knowledge. It would force minds. You'd have a renewal ceremony, which would be another public commitment um, that would allow you to, you know, we, we know from the data that when people make public commitments, they are more likely to uh, feel good about that commitment afterwards. And so I think there would be a lot of um, positive energy. And I think it would probably give most marriages 14 years, which is enough time to maybe raise some children adequately. And, and if that were the case, wonderful the, the other thing is that if you had five renewals like that's a very romantic thing but I, I think the idea of going into uh, any commitment for the rest of your life in a world in which we live for a very long time things change uh you're going to go through this whole thing of having children together maybe so um I think there's a lot of taboo around the failure of marriage that we should address as, as a society and not pretend like it's a private issue I love it. That's, uh, more, more liberation, please. Um, please get elected. <laughs> please focus on that as well. Josh, have you got a taboo? I mean, you put me on the spot, but I think there's still a lot to be done in terms of mental health. I think we've come a long way. And I studied in California for a year and it just shocked me how far ahead a lot of my peers were in terms of talking about, you know, vocalizing things like anxiety. You know, that was really important for me to even have that vocabulary around it. I think you know, growing up in a village in England definitely stunted a lot of my kind of emotional development and ability to talk about my emotions and feelings. But I think there's still a long way to go there. Um, also, because I think in the psychedelic space, something that concerns me is people looking at psychedelics as like a, a silver bullet. You know, you, you have a you have depression or you have PTSD and it's a way of, you know, within yourself doing the work as people call it you know introspecting going within and kind of confronting that trauma and I think while that's useful for a lot of people and it's also specifically useful for people who have like something that's identifiable some acute trauma that they experienced whether it was an act of sexual assault or whether it was something that happened on the battlefield I think that's like the best use case for for something acute like that um, but I think a lot of people's trauma and a lot of people's depression is located in something broader. You know, it's their material living situation, uh, abusive partnership that they can't escape from. So I think the kind of next step that I want to see happen and the next kind of taboo I want to see broken is broadening this mental health discussion to, you know, why are people depressed in the first place? You know, we, yeah. there's not going to be some drug that people can take to escape their material situations. Mm. So, yeah, I think just broadening the debate and looking more at kind of social norms and social material situations. But also I studied political economy. So, I mean, I'm always naturally kind of bent towards that way of looking at things. But yeah, I kind of want to see that discussion. Thank you so much, both of you. We, we should say, by the way, that in most, you know, in most of the world at the moment, uh, because of Nixon, um, the, the uh, psychedelic medicines are still outlawed and you will still, you know, in theory, have a prison sentence for um, accessing them. But um, there are other means as well as kind of, you know, mental health therapies out there. It's, it's worth for anyone listening, who doesn't have access um, to consider things like breath work, um, which basically put the brain into the, the same or a very similar state to psychedelic medicine, but just by using the autonomic, the, the breath work kind of um, 
a system uh, and by particular kind of breathing, you can uh, create this effect in the brain, this neural plasticity. Um, it's worth in investigating breath work because I think there's a lot more research that needs to be done there as well. Goodness, I, I feel Absolutely. like we need to have another three interviews because um, there, there are so many fascinating topics. Uh, I think we could definitely have an hour just about the investing side of things too. Um, but sure. I feel like we've at least addressed the, the most crucial thing, which is that a, a non-addictive drug, which connects us all and makes us value nature, um, has finally gotten the attention of the FDA and has been fast-tracked through the, the clinical trial process. So um, uh, for people who want to make sure that um, they're not the victim of something like heroin, it's not a drug like that. It's something that uh, that liberates us. So it's a uh, um, it's nice to get to that point and to to talk about that you know that discussion today. Utopia's coming, I promise. I'm, I'm going to try anyway. We've got to try. <laughs> so ben, do you just, have anything else? Yeah, let's just wrap up and say um, uh, if people want to get in contact with you guys or read more about what, what we've talked about today, how do they do that? If there's any single guys that want to get in touch with Tara, how do they do that? <laughs> you want to sign a seven-year contract with Tara. <laughs> oh, anyone's up for the prenup, yeah. <laughs> well, a Twitter, I guess, or, um, yeah, something like that. You can put those in the show notes. So if you have a Twitter or something, you, you can... Um, either let us know or verbalize it now and, and we can put it in the show notes as well yeah i think uh i think my twitter is josh underscore underscore hardman and then uh, i'm i'm writing for psilocybin alpha which i understand is difficult to say write read and pronounce so i also registered as psychedelicalpha.com, which is also maybe not that much easier, but you can find me on Twitter at least. <laughs> and that brings me perfectly to the PAR campaign because we've um, in the UK and and the and with Mind Medicine Australia and the Canadian Psychedelic Association, uh, we're hoping to run this public campaign. We're looking for funding at the moment. Uh, if anyone wants to give us some money to run uh, some poster ads and, and print ads and things like this and social media. Um, PAR is psilocybin access rights, of course, because psilocybin does begin with a P, which makes it a little bit awkward to say, uh, but we call it the PAR campaign. Psilocybin access rights is what we're asking for, for those who are suffering and in need. Um, and yes, we're, uh, we have a website, par.global, uh, which is going to be undergoing lots, lots of change in the coming uh, weeks and months, hopefully. Um, and that's for the CDPRG that I'm working with in the UK. So at CDPRG or at uh, Austin T. There you go. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, wonderful to be here. Thank you.